Hello, and welcome back to That's Debatable. Recently in radio class, we had a project to interview someone in a career that we're interested in. Right now, I'm thinking of possibly majoring in statistics, and so I thought I would interview someone in that field. And if you followed this show, you probably know that I'm also interested in politics. So to combine those two interests, I found someone named Craig Reynolds, who's an actuary and for the last two years has also served on the Mercer Island City Council. Now, this interview was supposed to be around five minutes, but it turned around closer to 30 minutes because he had a lot to say. It was very interesting, and I learned a lot about how the government functions on the city of Mercer Island. And it was interesting to see how he used his experience as an actuary to aid in his decisions. I thought I'd show the full interview on this show, and so I hope you enjoy. Hello, you were listening to 88.9 The Bridge. I'm Miles Avales, and today I'm joined by a special guest. Our guest today is a graduate of MIT where he earned a degree in mathematics. He now works as an actuary for Milliman, a consulting firm that helps companies to manage financial risk. He has been a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and served as a president from 2015 to 2016. Finally, since 2019, he has also been a council member of the Mercer Island City Council. Welcome to the show, Craig Reynolds. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. So my first question for you is, what made you decide to major in mathematics? You know, it's kind of an interesting one. I went to college probably intending to be a physics major. I was I was very interested in in uh, sciences and found as I was going through physics that it's closely related to mathematics. And you got to be good at physics or math to be good at physics. So I was really kind of stumbling into a, a double major of math and physics. But once I got on to uh, quantum physics, I found that it just my brain just didn't work that way. I, I, I didn't uh, wasn't able to to follow the the science in the same way that I needed to be to be really good at it. So I, I, I backed up and said, OK, I'm really good at math. I enjoy that. You know, no coincidence. People tend to enjoy things they're good at. Uh, so I, I switched to mathematics at that point. What kind of options did you have after majoring in something as broad as mathematics? But at that time, it was largely just teaching and teaching typically at the high school or, or lower level to college teaching would generally require an advanced degree, which I did not have, or actuarial work. Nowadays, there are a lot more options open to people that are math and statistics majors because data science and data analytics has become such a huge part of almost every company's operations, but but especially tech companies and, and, and the like. So the people that are really good at that tend to be computer science or statistics or mathematics majors, and that's the background most people come from. A number of people that work in those fields have actuarial credentials as well, and I think that's a good fit because by and large, the data scientists understand data and data manipulation, but don't necessarily understand the underlying business problems. And so a data scientist that's going to work in, in, in finance or work in the insurance world, it helps to be an actuary as well. So you can have that side to, to, uh, to your capabilities. How did you become an actuary? Well, I, I, I stumbled into the profession as the first job I could find uh, coming out of college with, with the math degree. Thought I would only do it for a couple of years while I waited for my wife to graduate and I went back to grad school, but I, I, I found that I just liked it. It was uh, uh, getting that first job at that time was fairly easy. It's tougher now. The, the market has gotten tougher for reasons I don't fully understand. I think because the profession's gotten some good publicity, so a lot, a lot more people are interested in the profession. 
Um, but to become a fully credentialed actuary, once you get those, that first job requires taking a series of examinations that at the time that I started, there were 10 exams that you took. You took them twice a year. Typically, the pass rate is around 30 to 50%. So it sometimes takes quite a while to get through all those exams. Um, nowadays, they've broken them up into some smaller chunks, and some things are not strictly speaking exams. They're more like seminars that you have to take. So it's a little harder to quantify how many there are, but still you have to typically think of it as being a maybe a seven to 10 year process to get through this series of exams. Can you describe your job and what you do on an average day as an actuary? Well, it's 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 changed a bit since uh, in terms of the environment I work in in the last two years because of COVID. Um, but um, I have a team of about 30 people or so that are working for me. I am a, a consultant and most of almost all of my clients are are life insurance companies. And broadly what I'm doing is building financial models to help them understand how they're making money where their risks are, what sort of things can make them not make money, help them figure out how to make more in the future, and yeah. generally help them understand how to be uh, financially responsible. It involves uh, building a lot of complex computer models that will sometimes take hundreds or thousands of hours to run, you know, spread out across multiple machines, so the elapsed time is, is not that great, but they're, they're very fancy computer models. So on a given day, I'll probably spend, if I had to think about it, you know, maybe a, a, a third of my time will be talking to clients, uh, helping them to understand what problem they're trying to solve and helping them to understand what we're doing to help them. A third of my time might be actually doing some of the number crunching or reviewing some of the number crunching other people have done. And the other third of my time is either in in writing to help people understand what we what we produced or in uh, uh, helping to develop new business as a consultant i've got to always got to find the next client and then and the next project yeah you were talking about how you mainly work for life insurance companies and life insurance companies sometimes have like a bad reputation for like ripping people off based on like certain health factors so in your job how do you navigate the ethics of that kind of work? Sure. I, I think first it's 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 important to understand the, the, the fundamental principles of insurance. And one is this, this broad idea of risk sharing. You know, none of us really know when we're going to die, right? That, that, that's very clear. In, unless you're, you know, falling off a cliff and you're falling or something like that. <laughs> um, so, what the insurance companies have to do if they're selling life insurance is decide that, okay, we're going to charge everybody some reasonable rate. And in return for charging them this amount of money, we're going to pay a benefit to their beneficiaries when they die. You have to figure out a fair amount to charge somebody so that the amount you charge is consistent with the risk that you're taking on. And it wouldn't make any sense to let, for example, somebody that had stage four cancer pay the same rate as somebody who does not have cancer, because that's not really the fair thing to the healthy person. He's way paying, he or she would be paying way more than they should for their, their risk. So there, there has to be some sort of a risk classification process to make sure that the insurance company knows who's healthy and who's not, and that somehow everybody pays an amount that is 
consistent with the level of risk they pose to the company. Insurance companies are pretty good at that. They've gotten, you know, over, over decades or centuries of work, they understand who's healthy and who's not. And, and actuaries have been a big part of trying to figure that out of how to decide who's likely to die soon and who's not. And I don't think they make any more money on poor health people than they do good health people. It's just poor health people have to pay more because they'll cost more to provide the coverage to them. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with that at the end of the day. It's probably easier to relate to even in the context of, of auto insurance, which is an area that I don't work in. But if I did, if we charged everybody the same amount, then the people that are lousy drivers would be getting a hell of a deal and the people that are good drivers would be paying way too much. So this risk classification or, or separation is a very important part of, of being fair to everybody, really. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, shifting topics back a bit, what what do you most enjoy about your job? Many things. Um, my children tell me they don't believe I'll ever retire, and they might be right because I, I enjoy my job an awful lot. There are a couple of things that come to mind. One is challenge. I don't want to do the same thing every day. You know, it's just boring to me. And so I want things that are going to make me have to figure out new things, new ways of doing things, solve new problems in or old problems in new ways. And there's an awful lot of that in, in this work. The, I, I'm a consultant and the billing rates we charge our clients are high. And so people don't hi hire us for easy work. They only hire us for challenging work. And, and I find that uh, very satisfactory. The second is variety. I, I get to do different things and unpredictable things almost every day. I usually have a mental, if not a written list of what I'm going to do in a day when I wake up in the morning. And most days I end up doing something completely different than that because I got a call I didn't expect or, or an email I didn't expect and the day evolves in a different way. So that, that's another big one. And I would say a, a third one is I get to work with some of the smartest people anywhere. And I, I appreciate that, the opportunity to work with smart people that are similarly dedicated to their profession. If you've ever had the misfortune to work with people who don't really care about their job or care about doing good work, it's a really depressing thing to have to be around that. And let's see, so variety, challenge, people. Yeah, th those are the, the big things I would say. Yeah. Why and how did you get involved with this Mercer Island government or the city council? My first real role in this was back in 2017 or 2018, somewhere in that area. I can't recall exactly when, when the city was facing some tough decisions about what to do with their with their budget situation. And they were trying to decide should they uh, put in place a, a, a tax levy to help address some uh, some projected budget forecasts. And they, they put out a call for citizen volunteers to work on what they call the community advisory group to help them look at the data and, and come up with some decisions about what the city should do. I heard about this somehow or another. I don't recall through an email or a social media post. I'm not sure. And I looked at that and said, well, that sounds a lot like what I do in my daily job is, is help do financial forecasts and, and uh, figure out ways to address financial problems. So I just thought, well, what the heck? I'll, I'll volunteer for that and see if I can add some value. Um, I did, and they selected me to participate in this process. And I, I found a couple of things. One, uh, that it was very interesting work. Two, it was important work, I think. And three is that I found there was a wide range of values among people of the community on, on topics related to this. 
So after that experience, I, I volunteered to be on the planning commission as well. So that, well, that's another way that I can contribute to the city and may, maybe I'll enjoy that too. And learned a lot about land use issues through that. And local government is a lot about land use topics. That's where a lot of these things come along. And from there, the, the next logical thing was to, to go run for the city council. And I, and I looked at the city council and thought, well, generally have some good people on the council, but there are some people that I think are going to run that I think have different values than my own. And if I can't convince people whose values I share to run, then it's up to me to step forward. You know, if, if nobody else steps up, you've got to do it. And I, I wanted to have a voice and make sure the direction of the city was was aligned with where I wanted it to go. And I decided to do that. Um, I won in a close race. I've been on the council for about two years now. And I found that the actuarial skills I have um, have really prepared me well for a lot of the city, a lot of the issues the city has to deal with. Some are the technical skills, like uh, the ability to understand a budget and a financial forecast. Um, some of them are the people skills on how you communicate and make a great argument for something you're worried on and, and how you write well and, and speak well. Those are all things I have to worry about in my day job. So I've, I've applied those to the council as well. Yeah. So building off of that, how exactly do you run a campaign for like a city government position? Um, that, that was a learning process for me. Um, generally speaking, to run a successful campaign for the city council, you most of the time will have to raise at least $25,000 or so. Um, could be done with less, depending on whether you have a, a quality opponent or not, or, or something that's actively campaigning, but around there. And that money goes towards a few things. One, developing flyers or mailers you can send out to the community. The, the second big one is probably making yard signs and things like that to go up around this community to basically get your name known. Once you've got those things done, um, there are debates to be involved in that happen in the community, but you know those can only go so far. A typical debate will have you know 50 or up to a couple hundred people to show up, and there are you know in excess of 10,000 potential voters on the island. You got to reach more of them than that. So really, one of the most important things to do is is go out and knock on doors. I, I, I found you know, I knocked on several thousand doors when I when I ran for office. And, you know, just it's as simple as saying, hi, I'm Craig. I'm running for city council. Uh, Want to in introduce myself, see if you have any questions or suggestions on how the city's doing, what they should do differently. And mm -hmm. by and large, I, I think voters appreciate that. They appreciate that somebody cares enough to come around and talk to them. And frankly, a lot of it is name recognition. And then you get to the ballot box, they're going to say, oh, I remember that guy he came to the house. Didn't seem like a total toad. Sure, I'll vote for him. Actually, had a few people that lived at the end of some very steep driveways that even went further, and they said, "Anybody that cares enough to walk up my driveway deserves a vote." <laughs> so, you know, some some of that happens as well, but really, it depends on one way or another being willing to, you know, put yourself out there and take some heat. Um, this is a challenging city in, a, in terms of political climate, and you have to have a, a strong backbone, backbone and a thick skin to know people are going to throw a lot of stuff at you, but. Put yourself out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with like those kind of conflicts that you have to deal with, how does that play out within the city council team itself? What kind of relationship do the members have? You know, I think uh, 
we, we generally have a, a, a civil and productive relationship. I think council meetings are almost always, you know, very professional and, and respectful. There are some members of the council that I tend to agree with a lot more often than I do others, but I think we do a good job of hearing each other out and, and sometimes uh, reaching out to compromise and identify solutions that work. You also have to recognize that some of the meetings you come out of the council and say, I can't believe we just voted to do whatever it was, something. And I, I go home and I gripe to my wife, but then we go on to the next day and the next issue. You know, it's just part of life. You can't win everything. Yeah. Uh, how is your time divided between your career as an actuary and then the stuff you do with the Mercer Island City Council? Um, in a challenging way. <laughs> <laughs> my My day job is not an easy job. I probably work in my day job, you know, 50 to 60 hours a week, depending on the week. Wow. Um, the doesn't have to be that much, but I, I like it. And my comp is highly tied to how much work I do because I'm, I'm a consultant. I'm paid by the hour. So I, you know, I like to make money as much as anybody else does. So I work a lot. And I also have a job where I'm, I'm the boss of my practice. And so I can, uh, some things it's a buck stops here situation where if something wants to get done at the end of the day sometimes i just have to be there to make sure it gets done the council work is is less but and i haven't tabulated in a while but i would guess it's probably 10 to 15 hours a week on average and that's divided between you know time in council meetings uh, various committee and task force meetings and then dealing with one heck of a lot of email that comes in and then i'm also although not councilor work related I do another five to 10 hours a week uh, working with another project I'm passionate about, which is the Seattle Universal Math Museum, which is a project here in town that has been underway for about two years to build a, a museum of mathematics here in Seattle. I'm on the board of that organization and spending a fair amount of time trying to get that thing kicked off and built. What kind of decisions does the council make versus the mayor? In terms of city government, there are two basic forms that city governments take. We can have a, a strong mayor or a weak mayor system. And in, in a strong mayor system, the mayor has a lot of power and a lot of authority and kind of functions similar to the way that the president of the US might work, where he's in, he or she is in some way separate from the council or above the council, might have veto authority, might have some administrative responsibility to actually run the city. We have uh, uh, what's known as a weak mayor system, which I, I hate that term because it makes it sound like we're somehow deficient to the other systems. It's not, <laughs> it's just different. Where we have a full-time city employee that is the city manager, and then the mayor is just another council member. And the mayor's authority is only a little bit greater than that of the, of the council members. You know, they chair the meetings and they have a little bit more authority to decide what gets on the agenda of the council. But at the end of the day, they only have one vote, just like every other council member has. The authority of the mayor is not that much greater than, than the council member has. The city manager, though, is, is much different. And the city of Mercer Island has, in round numbers, around 200 employees. And that city manager, directly or indirectly, manages all those employees and basically makes sure the work gets done. Does, do the roads get paved? Does the grass and the parks get cut? 
to the streets get sanded and plowed in the wintertime, all that stuff is, is up to the city manager. The council provides policy direction to, to, the, to the city manager and allocates budgets and says, okay, we think you should spend more money on, on parks and, and hire some more people there to expand, improve parks maintenance. Or, or we think the city needs to get serious about climate sustainability issues. And one of the issues we'll be talking about tomorrow in a meeting we have is, should we be banning gas powered leaf blowers? Should we be mandating the, the uh, use of only electricity to heat and provide hot water in commercial buildings? Those are policy decisions that the council can make. And then once we make them, the city manager is responsible for implementing those decisions. Who appoints the city manager or is that something on the ballot? No, the, the, the city manager is, is hired by the council. Um, technically, the, that is the only employee the council has. The city manager reports to the council everybody else reports to the city manager. So if if I think somebody on the staff is not up to their job, I don't have any authority to fire them whatsoever. What I would do in the unlikely event I saw that is I'd talk to the city manager and express my concerns and she would decide what to do about it. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, if the city manager is not doing her job and we think God, she's you know allowing people to be on the staff that we think are not pulling their weight and we counsel her about that and she doesn't address it, our action we could take is, is terminate the city manager and find another one, but we can never hire or fire anybody else, just the city manager. In your work with the city council, do you ever collaborate with other cities like Seattle or Bellevue? I, it hasn't come up very much so far. Partly that's been COVID exacerbated. There are a couple of organizations that are kind of organizations of cities, uh, one called the Association of Washington Cities and another one called the Sound Cities Association that are designed to facilitate collaboration and communication between the cities. But my sense is that COVID has kind of slowed that level of, of collaboration. It's, it's, you know, we don't get together in person and, uh, you know, the it's just harder to do those things virtually. We do have some things where there's collaboration going on though one is an example but let's take the leaf blower example that i that i talked about if we wanted to ban gas-powered leaf blowers we know that other cities have already done that so rather than trying to write legislation from scratch we can go to some other city that's done it and copy and adapt that to the to the code that we have so that that sort of thing will happen we also work together on a couple of other issues uh, i'm involved in a group called k4c which is the King County Cities Climate Collaboration. King County Cities. Yeah, that's four C's. I think I got that right. Um, and, and what that's working at doing is, is helping on some sustainability issues and helping figure out what various cities should be doing and how we can lobby the state legislature on addressing climate-related legislation. So that has members from all over King County that are on that King County Cities Climate Collaboration project so I'm involved in that. Another big one is uh, ARCH, which stands for a, a, reason, a Regional Collaboration for Housing. And that's a group that exists to try to build or, or arrange for housing for low-income people or, or affordable housing around the region. And we don't really have a, a policy role with ARCH, but we help fund it. And the various cities around the region all kick in money to help, help ARCH work. Mm -hmm. and, and we do that because you know, there's obviously a need for affordable housing around the region. That's a problem that Mercer Island just can't solve by itself. 
even if we wanted to build affordable housing, we don't have the resources to do it. And it would be very, very expensive to build such housing here on Mercer Island. It makes a lot more sense to pool our money and with other cities and build it in low, lower cost areas. Then we get more bang for the buck. How much do you find yourself using like your actuarial background or mathematical background in the decisions or the votes you cast? It, it definitely comes up. I mean, certainly some of the actuarial stuff is not necessarily mathematical. It's 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 just logical thinking and good communication skills. And those sorts of skills always apply in, in almost any job. Uh, but there are areas uh, that involve financial forecasting and long term views and, and risk management that the city faces where I think an actuarial perspective has been helpful. And, and there are times where other members of the council will, will look to me and say, in effect say, you know, I can tell Craig's going to have an opinion on this one, you know, yeah. <laughs> because they, they they know that that that's up my alley to be able to, to look long term and, and provide some analysis. A, a good example of one that was particularly relevant is the city has uh, a variety of public safety employees that are part of what's called the LEFF system, L-O-E-F-F. It's law enforcement and officers and firefighters or something like that that it stands for. And a lot of those employees are part of a an employee benefit plan that provides them basically guaranteed medical care for life after they retire. And it was a very generous program when that feature existed, but understanding how to fund or provide for that coverage is is really an actuarial problem because if somebody retires at 65 their costs will continue to grow as they age and if somebody ends up going into a nursing home where costs can easily be $300 a day costs can get dramatically higher as as people age and and if you you look at all that data and do a financial forecast you'll see that the, the cost for these retired people will go up and up and up over the next few years until around 2030 or so, 2035, I can't recall. It starts to go back down as, as people eventually pass away. In my view, the city's prior strategy of just paying those costs as you go, as they incur, was really pretty irresponsible because you want to be able to spread those costs out over time on a more levelized basis. So I was able to work with city staff and some other council members to develop a strategy to to pay a little more now to set money aside to pay for these long term costs. And that really is an, an actuarial exercise, just like with life insurance. You know, if you were to buy a policy today, your probability of dying is very low. But when you reach age 90, it gets very high. Those types of life insurance, you try to spread that cost out by paying a little bit more now so you can pay less later on. So it's a similar problem. Now, finally, what goals do you have for yourself going into the future? I would say in my my day job, I've accomplished most of my goals and I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. So I, I think what I'm primarily focused on is keeping my business running, trying to grow it and create new opportunities for people that work for me to grow and have as much fun as I did and be as financially successful as I have. So we're, it's all about... Uh, continuing to generate new clients and keep the clients happy and helping my staff to, to grow and learn so they can all be better and be able to do this for decades to come. So I'm in a stage of my life where I'm largely thinking about, you know, over the next few years, starting to transition out and create opportunities for other people.
when I think about the city, um, some of the main things I'm focused on are are making sure we have the best or one of the best park systems around and that we continue to have funds to, to maintain that park system, making sure our, our public safety, our police and fire and our utilities, water, sewer, et cetera, are, are top notch and providing all those things that they're supposed to, making sure that youth and family services is, is adequately funded and we have geriatric and youth counseling and family counseling services that are available for all that need them, and making sure we're doing our part to try to address climate change which we haven't been doing enough on lately in my view. And so all of those kind of to me fall in the, under the umbrella of what it means to be a full service city. And there are probably a couple of other things that I'm not mentioning that I, that I should be, but that's some of the big ones that fit there. And I wanna make sure that the city's financially responsible and can, can, can continue to be a full service city going forward. All right, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. No problem, it's been my pleasure. Stay tuned here on 88.9 The Bridge for more music and conversation that spans generations.